For years, I just dreaded going to the dentist. But at Advanced Dentistry, I don't have to. First and foremost, they want you to feel comfortable when you walk in. Like, you'll feel it. Whereas in the past, I might have gone into the dentist and thinking, I might feel some pain at some point. But with IV sedation, it can be something that you don't dread. If you've been avoiding the dentist because of fear, worry, or just not wanting to be judged, you're not alone. Visit NoFearDentist.com to learn how IV sedation can change your life. Hey, I'm John Lovett, and you're listening to Crooked Conversations. Today's show is a little different than what we usually do, and that's because our own Dan Pfeiffer... It's <laughs> my script here says who you know from Pod Save America, <laughs> which I really like. Uh, he's also a senior advisor to President Obama. He has a book out on June 19th called Yes, We Still Can Politics in the Age of Obama, Twitter and Trump. I'm going to talk to Dan for a few minutes about the book, and then we're going to hear an excerpt of the audiobook, a first ever audio excerpt podcast from Crooked Media. I guess. I don't feel like it's that big of a milestone. <laughs> it's a, it's Think of it as exclusive crooked content. Exclusive crooked content. Welcome, Dan, to Crooked Conversations. Uh, this is I've, one of my favorite podcasts. <laughs> I feel like you could do that with more feeling. <laughs> I, actually, I actually couldn't. <laughs> uh, so, Dan, first, just what is the book about? You know, you were somebody who was in politics for a very long time. You were with Obama on the road to the White House and then in the White House with the president for two terms. What did you learn and what were you trying to get across with the book? Well, when, you know, when I first left the White House, as is sort of the procedure for uh, some people leave the White House, it's like you turn in your badge, you turn in your BlackBerry, and then someone greets you at the gate to see if you'll write a book about your time there. And when I first <laughs> left the White House, I thought, I don't really want to write a book. I don't know what, you know, this would be like 2015. I don't really know what you, like what, what story I wanted to tell or what unique perspective there would be that wouldn't be told by Obama himself or had just been told by David Axelrod or others who have written books. And it wasn't until after the 2016 election when I thought back to the to our time in the White House and tried to figure out like why did we why did I and all of us get 2016 so wrong? What did I miss in politics that could create a world where the unthinkable could happen and Donald Trump could win? And so I tried to find a way to tell the story of my time working for Obama and my time in politics through the prism of the forces that helped create an environment where someone like Trump could win, whether it's Twitter or the emergence of fake news or changes in media or sort of the changes in the Republican Party. And so it was sort of like I wanted to tell that story while also sort of working through my very complicated emotions uh, post-2016. Yeah, I think one of the reasons a lot of us were surprised in 2016, not least because we elected our worst person to the most powerful job in the world, was because the people we looked to to understand how the race would unfold got it wrong as well. And part of the reason we looked to them is because my view was for someone like Barack Obama to be such an underdog and to become president meant the people around him, including you, understood politics in a way that allowed you to run an incredibly adept, smart, and sophisticated campaign to make that underdog victory possible. And then when those same tools and then those same people looked at 2016, they they missed. So what what did you learn? What had changed or what didn't you understand that you feel like you understand better now? Sure. I think like one of the one of the last chapters of the book is 2016. And when I originally wrote the outline, the idea was like, why did Trump win or what went wrong? And 
as I spent time thinking about that, that was sort of an impossible question to answer because you can say, oh, it's Comey's fault or it's the Russians' fault or Hillary should have gone to Wisconsin or shouldn't have used a private email. Or you can pick in a race that close, you can pick a million things and say that's a deciding factor. So I tried to better understand why I got it wrong. Like what happened? And I think sort of there are a couple elements to it. One is I think is that I certainly and I think people around Obama and just punditry in general, political observers, sort of lost touch with the things that made Obama be able to succeed, both in 2008, 2012, and throughout his presidency. The idea that he had a very good, simple, memorable message that was a story, not a soundbite. That the, mm-hmm. that an, an economic message that appealed broadly was a co- was core to almost everything he did. And that's something that wasn't present in 2016, for a whole host of reasons, some of which have, are not the fault of Hillary Clinton or the Democratic Party in general. It just it wasn't something we lost touch with. And one of the things that also occurred to me is we may have become too enamored with the new tools, right? Like the lesson of 2012 for everyone was data is king. We now have all this data, these magic tools at our hands, and we can know with incredible precision what individual voters who they will vote for and what will cause them to vote for them, what issues they care about. So we can go, we now can go use social media to advertise healthcare to moms over 50 with two kids in this precinct in Ohio and immigration mm-hmm. to this fit to this person and, you know, veterans issues to, to men over 60. And in doing that, we became so enamored with those tools that we lost the idea of telling a compelling story. Right. So instead of using the tools to instead of coming up with a message that appealed broadly and then using those tools to to get those tools, that message out in the most efficient way possible, we were using that we were reverse engineering a campaign message. And that was very problematic. And then I think lastly, and I didn't really realize this until I sort of went back and thought through like how Obama dealt with the birther stuff or sort of the role Fox News played over time is that all the tools that Trump would need to succeed were there all along. Just Obama was, I think, in virtue of his talent as a politician, able to succeed despite the presence of those tools that we didn't, because of that, we didn't realize how powerful they were and how much the world had changed in terms of media and politics that made it so much easy. They made it easy for someone that advantaged someone like Trump who was willing to break, break norms. Yeah. So it's a, it's a funny thing. It's, it's obvious in hindsight, but in the, in the moment, I think a lot of people didn't really realize that, which is that we, I felt, we felt that Obama represented a change, but in a lot, and of course he did, but also by sheer, by dint of his abilities, he was also able able to overcome a lot of the old problems and structural problems that made it hard for Democrats to win in the first place. Yeah, that's right. I think we assumed everyone who worked for Obama in 2012 thought Obama's performance with white voters in general and white working class voters in particular was the floor for Democrats. And that obviously Hillary Clinton um, <laughs> would do better or whoever, the, any nominee, whether it's Hillary Clinton, Joe Biden or, or Bernie Sanders, would do better than Obama with some white voters in places like North Carolina or Florida and in in that difference would certainly make up for what was probably going to be at least a little bit of a drop in African-American turnout. But as it turns out, Obama, I think by virtue of his personal story, his messaging, his the view that he had sort of – that he was, he was normal or not a part of any sort of crooked establishment, 
allowed him to hold on to some of these voters who maybe may have left the Democratic Party earlier had it not been for him. And that he actually was he was the aber- he was the exception, not the rule when it came to Democratic yeah. performance with those voters. And I think that's dint of his talent and the fact that he was able to be president for eight years and still seem removed from a Washington that people hated. Yeah. And so I just want to say, as someone who's heard you speak about what's in the book, I think what you, what you say about Facebook and Twitter and how social media is influencing our politics now and what the change means, you know, I, you came to our company retreat, the first annual Crooked Company Retreat, and you gave a presentation about what you learned about Facebook and Twitter that was one of the smartest and most interesting and I think important pieces of analysis I think people who care about politics should hear. But it's not just... It's not just analysis. There's also a lot of really great stories in the book. We're going to hear one, but what's one just sort of funny <laughs> anecdote about working in the White House that people would appreciate that's in the book? I, when I wrote the book, I had these stories that were sort of still sitting on the shelf that I thought were funny or interesting to people who haven't worked in the White House, but they didn't really fit in the sort of in the chapter flow. And so I just added, just sort of threw them in as little interludes between chapters. And there, oh, like, awesome. there is a... There is a story about President Obama's, ironically, President Obama's encounter with Kanye West at a Democratic fundraiser before Kanye donned the MAGA hat. It's a pretty uh-huh. interesting <laughs> how Kanye's brain works. We have some stories about Barack Obama giving me relationship advice when I first started dating my wife. You'll hear a little bit about the battle of the birth certificate. No, that's I think the birth certificate excerpt, I think, is what we're going to hear next. That's right. And where it gets where it's, it's interesting because it's the first real encounter with Trump and politics. And you'll see this in the excerpt, but that the danger of his rhetoric and also the enduring, the endurance of these conspiracy theories long after they've been objectively disproven um, was probably a real lesson for uh, or a warning that we missed about the power of his conspiracy theories in a 2016 election. Awesome. Well, before before we though- before we do the transition here, I that you will appreciate this. I have a bunch of footnotes in the book that are trying to be like a little humorous asides that didn't really fit in the uh, like in the actual narrative flow, but I just thought were worth throwing in there. And um, when I was doing an interview with my hometown paper, the editor, <laughs> the reporter, asked me. He said the footnotes are really funny. Did Love It write those? <laughs> <laughs> Which I thought you would both, yeah. you'd appreciate the idea that you would be, the, in, people would insist the funny parts were from you, but you would find them not funny enough to be love it worthy. So it would be a mixed bag. I appreciate it. And I hate it. I appreciate it because obviously it's nice that someone reads something funny and think I might be involved. I hate it because it's like, <laughs> how low rent am I that I'm like coming in and doing a footnote polish on Dan's book? <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Well, I feel like I feel like just the the fact that there is an Obama Kanye story in the book is enough to get people on the hook. But even still, even still, uh, when we come back, we're going to have an excerpt from Dan Pfeiffer's new book. Yes, we still can. Dan, thanks for uh, thanks for walking us through it. Thanks for having me. You're listening to Crooked Conversations, and we'll hear an excerpt of Dan Pfeiffer's brand new book. Yes, we still can. After this break. Crooked Conversations is brought to you by Tripping.com. Ever plan a vacation? Finding a place to stay that will make everyone happy for the right price where you all want to visit, well, it can feel like a full-time job. Spend less time planning your next trip with Tripping.com. You don't visit a ton of different sites. On Tripping.com, one search lets you compare every home from the world's top vacation rental sites in one place to find the best deal on your perfect vacation rental. 
Vacation rentals offer more, more privacy, more space for everyone under one roof, and more choices with fully stocked kitchens, extra bedrooms, and even hot tubs. All the comforts of home, and then some. Best of all, at Tripping.com, you can join millions of travelers who find more savings with rates up to 80% less than traditional hotel rooms. So if you're planning a spring break on the beach in Florida, go to Tripping.com. Can't wait to swim in Lake Tahoe this summer? Go to Tripping.com. Dreaming of sitting on a deck of a Smoky Mountains cabin? Visit Tripping.com. This year, save time and money when you book vacation home of your dreams with Tripping.com slash Convos. That's T-R-I-P-P-I-N-G dot com slash C-O-N-V-O-S. Convos, plural. Find your perfect vacation rental, Tripping.com slash Convos. We're playing an excerpt from Chapter 5, which is about the big Obama birth certificate conspiracy and what the White House had to do to get that birth certificate and put this conspiracy theory to rest. The first political encounter between uh, the Obama administration and someone who would go on, believe it or not, to become president, Donald Trump. Let's let's play it. Chapter 5. Fighting Fake News. On a dreary morning in April 2011, I found myself facing sleep-addled reporters in a half-empty White House briefing room. From the earliest days of my career, I had dreamed about standing at this very spot. The podium, as it's known to everyone in Washington, is the top of the game. It's like the mound at Fenway for a ballplayer. If you're standing there, you have made it. The White House briefing room is one of the most famous rooms in the world. History has been made in this room more times than one can count. I had long thought about what it would mean to be in this exact spot as a senior White House aide. This was supposed to be a big moment for me, but as I walked up to the podium, I thought to myself, was I there to announce important new government policy? Nope. Was I there to joust with the media about the issues that mattered? Nah. Was I there to respond to the mad ravings of a conspiracy theory spreading reality television star? Bingo. I had walked into the briefing room that morning with 50 copies of Barack Obama's birth certificate so we could prove once and for all that the man who was in his third year as president after winning a historic electoral landslide was an American citizen eligible to be president. The term fake news was not yet part of the political lexicon, but this might very well have been the moment when it rose from something that elicited an eye roll to something that necessitated a full-throated response from the White House. The era of hashtag fake news was born. What is hashtag fake news? Fake news may now be on the tip of everyone's tongue, especially President Trump's, but it didn't just magically appear in 2016. The battle against fake news was a defining element of the Obama era. We dealt with it, worried about it, and were disheartened by it from the very beginning of the campaign. It's something Donald Trump played a large role in perpetuating long before he was a candidate for president, and it just may have cost Hillary Clinton the White House. But what is fake news? Like so much in politics these days, it's way more confusing than it should be since it has several meanings. In the months before the 2016 election, the following stories went viral. Pope Francis shocks the world, endorses Donald Trump for president. WikiLeaks confirms that Hillary sent weapons to ISIS. FBI director received millions from the Clinton Foundation. ISIS leader calls for American Muslims to support Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton in 2013. I would like to see people like Donald Trump run for office. They're honest and can't be bought. Each of these stories received more than 500,000 engagements on Facebook, much greater than factual articles from the New York Times, Washington Post, and other outlets during the same period. 
and they were all complete, unadulterated bullshit. In these cases, these stories were completely made up by outside actors, including the Russians, and then spread on Facebook to influence the election. There was also the screaming of fake news at any piece of information that one doesn't like, even, and often, when it is undeniably true. This is in some ways a defense mechanism for our infantile and insecure president, but it has an even more alarming purpose. The point is to signal to Trump's most diehard supporters to dismiss any piece of news that is bad for Trump, even if it is objectively and obviously true. When it was revealed that Donald Trump Jr., Trump's oldest son and the Fredo of the Trump clan, was corresponding with someone representing the Russian government about their efforts to help Trump win, Trump supporters refused to believe the story and questioned the authenticity of the emails, even though they were released by Fredo himself. However one chooses to define it, the fake news phenomenon is about the country moving into an era of post-truth politics, and 2016 was the tipping point. In the past, even the slipperiest politicians adhered to a plausible deniability of dishonesty. Instead of outright lying, they would put some measure of spin on a set of facts. Sometimes the spin was so absurd that it was hard to distinguish it from a lie. But at the end of the day, it was rooted in some truth, even if it perverted that truth beyond recognition. Trump was a wholly different entity. He was unburdened by the shame that keeps most people from outright lying. The media and the Clinton campaign were entirely unprepared to deal with something like this. Trump didn't play by the rules. He couldn't be chastened by criticism or persuaded by facts. In 2016, Trump and his team, foreign and domestic, were able to take this one step further and use Facebook to weaponize his lies and spread fake news far and wide. But like so much with Trump, it's easy to forget that Trump is a symptom, not the disease that affects the body politic. The underlying causes of the fake news phenomenon have been building for years, and they were a defining element of the Obama era. Even if we didn't use the term fake news, we dealt with the seeds of the post-truth era from the very beginning of Obama's first campaign. The Battle Against Birtherism When I pictured my debut in the White House briefing room, I did not imagine that it would be for such an absurd reason. Serious things were happening in the world. We had two active wars. Europe was on the brink of a financial crisis that could collapse the U.S. economy. We were headed into a major legislative showdown with a new Republican majority in Congress that had massive implications for the future of the country. Yet nearly every time the president or any White House official took questions from the media, they were asked to respond to whatever absurdity had come out of Trump's mouth in his latest appearances on the Today Show or Fox and Friends. In all fairness, most of the time the reporters were sheepish when they asked the question. These were serious people who had joined a serious profession to cover serious issues, being forced to ask an unserious question because of the never-ending search for ratings, clicks, and retweets. But nonetheless, the President of the United States was being forced to respond to a reality TV star less relevant than the Real Housewives. This is admittedly deeply unfair to the Real Housewives, all of whom would have been a better president, especially Bethany Frankel. Beyond the abject absurdity of the messenger, the claim that the President wasn't born in the United States, which came to be known as birtherism, was a particularly kooky conspiracy theory. Birtherism wasn't new when Trump turned it into a crusade. It had been around since the early days of the campaign. It was the subject of a series of malicious email chains that were being forwarded around the internet. These emails contained a wide array of false and particularly ridiculous information about Obama, including Obama was born in Kenya. Obama was educated in a madrasa during his time living in Indonesia as a small child. Obama was sworn into office in the Senate using a Koran instead of a Bible. 
Obama was not the son of Barack Obama Sr., but was the son of African-American activist and socialist Frank Marshall Davis. This was the era of journalism before social media, so the media mostly responsibly refused to cover the emails. They would check out the rumors, find them to be ridiculous, and then refuse to amplify them. Despite the mainstream media blackout, birtherism was gaining a disturbing amount of traction among some of the voters in rural Iowa, which hosted the critical First in the Nation caucus. Our field organizers were getting questions from the voters they were contacting. Most of the questions were well-intentioned. Democratic primary voters were scarred from consecutive losses and were viewing this information through the prism of Obama's electability. If we nominate Obama and this information comes out, will the Republicans win again? Our field staff would tell people it's not true, but they wanted proof both to soothe their own concerns but also to share with their friends and family. So we made the decision to post Obama's Certificate of Live Birth on the Internet. This was not an easy decision. It ran counter to one of the cardinal rules of political communications. Don't give oxygen to malicious rumors. It's better to ignore them than dignify them with a response that would catapult rumors from the dark corners of the internet to the front pages of the New York Times. But that rule, like most of the rules that govern public relations strategy, was written before the internet. To a certain extent, this tactic worked. The voters who wanted to support Obama were mollified by this information. Like all campaigns, we focus all our energy and resources on the people who might support our candidate. These are the people whose doors our organizers knocked and phones they called. It's one of the realities of campaigns that you cannot afford to spend any energy talking to voters or campaigning in states that will never support your candidate. Therefore, we didn't have any insight into how the far right of the Republican base was feeling about Obama's citizenship. As far as I was concerned, the issue had been put to bed. Once we got to the White House, we were inundated with the more serious issues that come with running the world, and I didn't think about those old campaign rumors. Every once in a while, I would get called up to the White House counsel's office to get a briefing because a collection of crackpots had sued the president to challenge the legitimacy of the election over the birther issue. The lawyers told us not to worry about it, and I didn't. While we were focused on things like saving the economy and passing a health care bill, however, the right-wing fringe was in overdrive. They had become convinced that the certificate of live birth we'd released during the campaign was a forgery. A major part of the conspiracy centered on the difference between the certificate of live birth we released and his long-form birth certificate, which was on file with the state of Hawaii. It's hard to overstate how dumb a discrepancy this is, but it's also hard to overstate how dumb the far right of the Republican Party can be. And then Donald Trump, a man whose depraved desire for attention would make a Kardashian blush, latched onto the cause. Trump was embarking on a press tour to promote the next season of The Celebrity Apprentice and was looking for ways to juice up the middling ratings of the show. He was even floating a presidential run, which is an old PR tactic for tricking the media into covering you. Almost no one took the idea that Trump was going to run seriously. He had employed this gambit before, but all the media needed was an excuse to put Trump on the air to say absurd things. And he certainly obliged again and again. Early on in this effort, he realized that he could get even more attention if he brought up the birther conspiracy. All of a sudden, the media could talk only about Donald Trump and the president's birth certificate, or lack thereof. Jay Carney, the White House press secretary, was being asked to respond to Trump almost daily. It was coming up in Obama's press interviews. It was becoming clear we had a problem. One day I was walking back to the Oval Office with Obama after yet another encounter with the press where he was asked to respond to questions about his birthplace. Maybe we should put the birth certificate out and be done with this, Obama said, half in jest, or so I thought. That would show them, but you know we can't do that, right? I responded, also half in jest. 
Obama said he agreed with me, but I could tell he didn't really mean it. I had seen this before when he was working his way to a certain position. I made a mental note to warn Pluff so that he could head it off at the pass. A few weeks later, we were on a fundraising trip to Chicago. Whenever we spent the night in Chicago, the president would stay at his house. He would often say that his Chicago home was frozen in time from the moment right before he took office. On his desk was the mail that came in January 2009 before they moved to D.C. Whenever he was home, often alone, he would root through all his stuff. On this particular trip, he was going through a box and found what he believed was his birth certificate. To this day, it isn't clear whether he stumbled upon this document or went looking for it. I have always suspected the latter. The president was excited about his find. He brought it back to the White House and showed it to Pluff and Bob Bauer, the White House counsel. He told them that he wanted to release the birth certificate and put the issue to rest. Bauer took one look at what Obama had in his hand and knew it wasn't his actual birth certificate. Instead, the president had found a ceremonial document that is sold in hospital gift shops. This is the document that families often frame, but you can't use it to get a passport or debunk a racist conspiracy theory burning up the internet. Obama was clearly disappointed by this fact, but he was not deterred. He directed Bauer to begin the process of acquiring his official or long-form birth certificate from the state of Hawaii. He didn't commit to releasing it, but told Bauer and Pluff to get it so we had it in our back pocket, just in case. During this period, I was living in blissful ignorance of these machinations, even though I knew the president was interested in releasing his birth certificate. This was a classic Barack Obama move. He had a tendency to want to address the elephant in the room, even if it took him off whatever we thought was the best message. His instinct was usually right. But in this instance, I couldn't bring myself to give in to Donald Trump and the band of racist nutjobs that he represented. In late April, I got a call to head up to Bauer's office. When Lauren Thorbjornsson, my assistant, asked about the topic of the meeting, she couldn't get an answer. Being called to the White House counsel's office was a lot like getting sent to the principal's office in high school. If you were there, there was a good chance you were in trouble. This was a particularly anxious time to be summoned to the White House counsel since the Republicans had taken over Congress and were launching politicized investigations into Obama administration activities in the hopes of finding wrongdoing somewhere. They didn't find anything. We all lived in fear of being subject to a congressional subpoena, having our emails and other documents released to the world, and amassing tens of thousands of dollars in legal bills that we couldn't afford. I walked into Bauer's wood-paneled office with more than a little trepidation. Pluff was sitting on Bauer's couch. This was another alarming sign. My boss, the lawyer, and me. This can't be good. Am I going to jail? I asked to break the ice. Almost certainly. But that's not the purpose of this meeting, Bauer responded with trademark sarcasm. They probably don't make this joke in the Trump White House, since some of them are undoubtedly going to transition from the White House to the Big House. As I sat down on the couch, Bauer started explaining how he'd ended up requesting the president's long-form birth certificate from the state of Hawaii, and how the president was intent on releasing it to the public. As I processed this piece of information, Pluff chimed in to say that the president wanted to go into the White House briefing room to release it himself. Well, that's fucking crazy, I said. Pluff explained that the president wanted to use this opportunity to take the conversation to a bigger idea beyond the birth certificate. He wanted to talk about the danger of the political conversation getting diverted by these side issues. This was a better idea than simply going before the nation and saying, hey, look, I'm American, deal with it but I was still horrified by the thought of the president being forced to go before the nation and defend his own legitimacy. It felt beneath him. It felt beneath the office. I could already read all the headlines and tweets to come about how this made Obama look weak. I tried to make my case, but I could tell by the look on his face that Pluff had made these points to the president and had not prevailed. The basic message was, take your case to the big guy. And oh yeah, 
He wants to release the birth certificate in the next two days, Bluff added. Later that day, I went to the Oval Office loaded for bear. The president was seated behind his desk, reading some memos. Before I could get my first sentence out, Obama said without even looking up from his papers, I bet you don't love my idea. I knew I had lost the argument. Obama had already played out all the scenarios in his head and come to a conclusion. I wasn't going to tell him some angle that he hadn't already thought of. I beat a strategic retreat. Instead of trying to convince the president not to release the birth certificate, I focused my energy on two things. First, separating him from the actual release. I proposed that Bauer and I provide it to the media at a briefing, then later that morning, Obama could deliver his message to the world in a speech. This would hardly address my major political concerns, but would at least keep Obama from having to answer a bunch of logistical questions about how we got the birth certificate. Second, I argued that the release should be a surprise. If we announced it in advance, the press would lose its collective shit and there would be a CNN countdown clock ticking down to the second of release. In the age of the internet, where a million things are happening at the same time and everything is dissected and analyzed before it even happens, one of the only ways to break through is to catch the world by surprise. He agreed with my recommendations and I headed back to my office to plot out how to execute this newly hatched plan. My desire for surprise meant we had to avoid leaks at all costs, which meant we would have a very tight circle for this plan. The president's top advisors and a couple of members of the press staff would need to pull it off without letting anyone else know. So on that sleepy morning, I walked into a nearly empty briefing room. It seemed that many reporters had assumed it would be a typical newsless briefing and decided to skip it. Even many of the reporters who had decided to come to work that day couldn't be bothered to walk the 100 feet from their workspace to listen in. Then one of the press assistants started handing out copies of the birth certificate. All hell broke loose. There were audible gasps. People immediately started emailing their news desk to tell them that, quote, real news was being made. The reporters who had planned on skipping the briefing were tripping over one another as they sprinted to their seats to get in on the action. After everyone was in place, I read a statement that explained the difference between the document we'd released in 2008 and the one we were releasing today. The reporters assembled before me were equal parts shocked, amused, and ashamed at the spectacle that was unfolding. The media's reaction was not different than my own. I couldn't help but laugh at the absurdity of the whole thing, but I was also embarrassed by the state of my chosen field. In the back of my mind, I wondered if I was standing there due to some failure on my part. Was there something I could have done that would have prevented the president from having to convince a decent part of the country of his American citizenship? The media responded to the release of the birth certificate with the professionalism of a pack of rabid hyenas. All of the cable news switched to nonstop coverage. Trump was coincidentally headed to New Hampshire that morning for a speech, which added to the drama. We had turned a quiet day into a major news event. A couple of hours later, the president came to the briefing room to lay out his case. Now, normally, uh, I would not comment on something like this. But two weeks ago, when the Republican House had put forward a budget that will have huge consequences potentially to the country, and when I gave a speech about my budget and how I felt that we needed to invest in education and infrastructure and making sure that we had a strong safety net for our seniors, even as we were closing the deficit. During that entire week, the, the dominant news story wasn't about these huge monumental choices that we're going to have to make as a nation. It was about my birth certificate. But we're not going to be able to do it if we are distracted. 
We're not going to be able to do it if we spend time vilifying each other. We're not going to be able to do it if we just make stuff up and pretend that facts are not facts. We're not going to be able to solve our problems if we get distracted by sideshows and carnival barkers. As I sat in one of the chairs on the side of the briefing room reserved for staff to watch the spectacle, I knew the president had been right and I had been wrong. He was making an important point. This was not the first and wouldn't be the last time that Obama's unconventional approach to politics had proven to be more prescient than my own. You're listening to an excerpt of Dan Pfeiffer's brand new book, Yes, We Still Can, on Crooked Conversations, and we'll be right back with more after the break. Crooked Conversations is brought to you by Quip. No matter who you are, brushing your teeth is one of the most important parts of your day to stay healthy, and Quip knows that. Their team of dentists and designers is focused on helping you take care of your mouth better. For starters, Quip is an electric toothbrush that's a fraction of the cost of bulkier brushes, while still packing just the right amount of vibrations to help clean your teeth. Quip's built-in timer helps you clean the dentist-recommended two minutes with guiding pulses that remind you when to switch sides. Quip's subscription plans are for your health, not just convenience. They deliver new brush heads on a dentist-recommended schedule every three months for five bucks, including free shipping worldwide. Quip also comes with a mount that suctions right to your mirror and unsticks to use as a cover for hygienic travel wherever you take your teeth. And finally, everyone loves Quip. They were on Oprah's O-List, named one of the Times Best Inventions, and is the first subscription electric toothbrush accepted by the American Dental Association. Quip was called the best electric toothbrush by GQ and the Tesla of toothbrushes by Bloomberg. Plus, they're backed by a network of over 20,000 dentists and hygienists, and hundreds of thousands of happy brushers use Quip every day. Quip starts at just $25, and you, if you go to getquip.com slash crookedconvos right now, you'll get your first refill pack free with a Quip electric toothbrush. That's your first refill pack free at getquip.com slash crookedconvos, spelled G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash crookedconvos. Ready for an amazing deal? BreezeLine's fiber-powered internet starting at $19.99 per month offers the reliability you deserve and security you can trust. Whether you're streaming, gaming, or working from home, we've got all your needs covered with speeds up to 1 gig and our two-year price lock guarantee. This deal gets even better with two free months of internet, free equipment, and free Wi-Fi your way to protect against cyber threats. Act now. Terms and conditions apply. Offer expires July 8, 2024. Learn more at BreezeLine.com. The release of the birth certificate shut up Trump to the extent that was possible. The reporters covering his faux campaign visit peppered him with questions about how wrong he was regarding Obama's birthplace. The media that had been party to Trump's absurdity turned on him with a vengeance. While there was some who thought we had made a strategic error, the bulk of the coverage applauded Obama for how he'd handled a less-than-ideal situation. A few nights later was the White House Correspondents' Dinner, where the president gives an annual comedic speech, and Trump was going to be in the audience. We had been planning to make a number of jokes about Trump and the birth certificate issue before the decision was made to release the document. My first stop after the president gave me my marching orders was Favreau's office. He had been working on the speech for weeks with John Lovett, Axelrod, and a collection of comedians and joke writers. The speech was almost done, then I showed up with the information that would upend the whole process. Favreau's first reaction was to curse me for fucking up his process about 48 hours before he owed a draft to the president but he quickly realized the golden comedic opportunity it presented. It was an open question if releasing the birth certificate would forever demean the office of the president and hurt our chances for re-election, but there was no question we were going to have an epic correspondence center speech. During the dinner, the president brought the house down 
with joke after joke about Trump, who sat in his seat refusing to laugh. He reportedly got up to leave not long after this joke, which went to the abject absurdity of Trump's credentials as a potential president. Now, I know that he's taken some flack lately, but no one is happier, no one is prouder to put this birth certificate matter to rest than the Donald. And that's because he can finally get back to focusing on the issues that matter. Like, did we fake the moon landing? What really happened in Roswell? And where are Biggie and Tupac? All kidding aside, obviously we all know about your credentials and breadth of experience. Um, for example, uh, no, seriously, just recently, in an episode of Celebrity Apprentice, at the steakhouse, the men's cooking team uh, did not impress the judges from Omaha Steaks. And there was a lot of blame to go around, but you, Mr. Trump, recognized that the real problem was a lack of leadership. And so ultimately, you didn't blame Little John or Meatloaf. You fired Gary Busey. And these are the kind of decisions that would keep me up at night. Well handled, sir. Well handled. And then the night after the dinner, President Obama stood in the East Room of the White House and announced that a unit of Navy SEALs had killed Osama bin Laden on his order. Trump had been ushered off the national stage in humiliation, his foray into politics forever ended, or so we thought. Here's the bad news. Years later, four in 10 Republican voters still believed that Barack Obama was not born in the United States. And it's not that they didn't know about the birth certificate that was released, it's that they refused to believe it. They thought it was a forgery. If the mainstream media said it was real, then the mainstream media was lying to cover up for Obama. We had shamed the media into stopping their nonstop, uncritical coverage of Trump's claims, but we hadn't convinced a lot of people about the truth. They couldn't hear what Obama was saying because Obama was saying it. And therein lay the problem. The birth certificate imbroglio was Obama's highest profile battle with fake news, but it wasn't the only one. Over the years, we faced several conspiracy theories propagated by conservative media figures who were believed by an alarmingly significant portion of the populace. The rumors about Obama's legitimacy were mostly advanced by figures on the fringes of the Republican Party. Notably, establishment figures refused to disavow these conspiracy theories for fear of upsetting their base, but they wanted to avoid being labeled a, quote, birther. In other words, they wanted weaponized racial animus stoked by people like Trump without being called a racist. In 2012, Mitt Romney made the pilgrimage to Trump Tower to beg for the endorsement of the birther-in-chief. This was a sign of things to come. Winning the battle against bullshit. We have a plague affecting our democracy that is getting worse by the day. Is there anything we can do about it? There are no easy answers. The fact that one of our two political parties now openly traffics improvably false conspiracy theories as our primary political strategy poses a threat to our system of government. This may sound dramatic, but if anything, it understates the problem. 
The American system of government operates on a set of norms, and if one party decides to regularly violate those norms in order to acquire more power, it cripples the ability to respond to disasters like hurricanes, threats like North Korea, and existential challenges like climate change. The Republican approach is one of immense cynicism and utter cowardice, but there is nothing I have seen in 20 years in politics that suggests Republicans are going to change their stripes anytime soon. Russia clearly played a huge role in promoting the conspiracy theories that dominated the conversation in 2016 in order to help Trump win. All of our intelligence agencies agree with this assessment. Congressional Republicans agree with this assessment. Yet, somehow this still seems up for debate. Why? Because there is one person in government who doesn't agree, Donald Trump, which should tell you everything you need to know. It is alarming that Russia was willing to be so aggressive, but it's even more alarming that such an absurd strategy worked. The Russians were pushing on an open door. Even if the government was able to stop the Russians from ever doing this again, we now have a conspiracy theorist in chief in the Oval Office. Pure propaganda is the official strategy of the Republican Party. If Democrats don't figure out how to combat it, we will be relegated to the opposition for years to come while Republicans flush the country down the toilet. Here are some lessons from Barack Obama's encounters with the purveyors of fake news that can be applied to the battles to come. Nothing is too crazy not to believe. It's easy to think some of the stuff circulating on the right is too crazy for anyone other than the French to believe, but that's a huge mistake. I was wrong to dismiss the idea that anyone would believe that Obama wanted to pass a law to kill old people, and we paid a huge price for letting it fester. We live in a time when the President of the United States is willing to use his Twitter account to spread lies to millions of his supporters who are willing to believe anything he says. Every conspiracy theory, no matter how ridiculous, must be taken seriously and responded to by the media and Democratic politicians before it takes off. The traditional calculus of being afraid of giving additional attention to the crazy stuff is an anachronism in the social media age. If fake news is the disease, Facebook is the carrier. All of the fake news stories mentioned earlier in this chapter spread across the populace through Facebook. For many Americans, Facebook is the internet. It's how they keep up with friends, it's how they communicate, and it's how they get the vast majority of the news. The problem is that despite being the primary news source for a lot of people, Facebook is not a media company in the traditional sense. They don't have editors or fact checkers. For financial reasons, Facebook values content that engages users over all else for the simple reason that they want you to stay on Facebook for as long as possible so they can show you more ads. Facebook doesn't show you everything your Facebook friends post. They only show content the algorithm thinks you will engage with. In the most simplistic of terms, Facebook defines engagement as the sum total of shares, likes, and comments. In a reflection of our highly polarized political times, holy shit stories like Pope endorses Trump generate a ton of engagement and are therefore shown to more people. The stories written by the mainstream media or the campaign-authored posts that debunk these stories receive exponentially less engagement and are therefore seen by exponentially fewer people. Facebook has pledged to fix this problem, and I think they are very sincere in that pledge. But it's a little like the NFL's pledge to deal with concussions. To do so would fundamentally change a very successful business, so it's unlikely to happen anytime soon. Democrats cannot wait around for Mark Zuckerberg to fix their problems. First, we need to monitor Facebook more closely to track the spread of these stories and memes. And second, we need to develop fact checks and counter messaging that generates enough engagement to be seen by as many people as possible. The next election will be fought on Facebook. Everyone is a fact checker. The fake news stories spread across the populace via Facebook and Twitter. But those same platforms give agency to everyone to lead the fight for truth. People are scrolling through their Facebook feeds, seeing posts about where Obama was or wasn't born, or alleging some made-up act of corruption by the Clintons. They don't click on the post to see where the story was from or whether it's credible, and depending on the Facebook algorithm or the makeup of their social network, 
They may be seeing these same false stories multiple times a day. Absent Facebook hiring millions of fact checkers to comb the platform, the only solution is to fight back. Multiple studies show that people are most likely to believe news if it comes from someone they personally know. Therefore, there is great power in people sharing on social media the stories and fact checks that debunk the lies being spread by Trump and his friends in the Republican fringe media. Democratic politicians need to build tools to make this easier for their supporters, but there is no reason we have to wait for that. Play a different game. Ultimately, the right strategy is to nullify the idea of objective truth. On issues such as climate change, healthcare, and tax policy, Republicans simply can't win an argument on the facts. So instead of changing their policy, they try to change the facts. Democrats could look at the relative success of Trump and decide to play his game. This would be a mistake. Cynical conspiracy theories are the Republicans' home turf, which we wouldn't be good at. Our supporters, who still trust objective news sources, wouldn't be fooled. Instead, we should swerve in the other direction and abandon normal political spin to ensure that our statements, positions, and analyses of the other side are factually bulletproof. The smallest error will allow Republicans to call the truth fake news, but we have the power to deny them that opportunity. Whenever one opens up Twitter and turns on the TV and sees some Republican congressman screaming about some made-up scandal that they learned about on Fox News or denying the very idea of climate change as America is hammered by hurricanes, it's easy to feel despondent about the future of the country. I feel that way sometimes too, but then I catch myself. There's some very good reasons to be hopeful about the future. It's easy to forget that it wasn't that long ago that we had a president and an administration that strove to tell the truth and make fact-based arguments. And the public rewarded that president with an overwhelming re-election and high approval ratings. We are still at the beginning of the internet age. The power and reach of new platforms like Facebook and Twitter are not yet fully understood, and savvy actors have the opportunity to exploit them with malicious activity. A good portion of Americans, particularly the older ones who vote most often, did not grow up on the internet. Their experience is from a different era, where one had reason to trust the things they read in the news. Most important, millennials are going to save us from ourselves. The millennial generation is about to become the most powerful force in politics, and they are equal parts internet savvy and skeptical. They were raised on the internet. They have a natural and well-earned skepticism about what they read online, as well as the skills to verify or debunk anything. As millennials become a larger part of the electorate, the propaganda tactics of the right are going to be less and less effective. In the meantime, Democrats must learn the lessons of Obama's battles with fake news, conspiracy theories, and con men. We cannot expect to win power again until we have figured out how to defeat the propaganda forces that created, elected, and are now propping up Trump. It's that simple. No pressure, but the fate of the free world, or at least this part of it, is at stake. I'm John Lovett, and you just heard an excerpt from Dan Pfeiffer's new book, Yes, We Still Can, Politics in the Age of Obama, Twitter, and Trump. It's really good. You should all buy it. There's a lot of bullshit political books out there, but this isn't one of them. Right, John? Right. He doesn't really have a mic, but he agrees. Uh, It was a special episode of Crooked Conversations. Go back and listen to all our other episodes. Feels pretty demanding. And we'll be back with more next Wednesday. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. 